Good morning. Good to be with you. All right, kids, there you go. <laughs> and be blessed in your going. Well, uh, for those of you that might not know me, my name is Brad. I'm one of the associate pastors here. And I'm going to share this morning on a couple of Old Testament characters, uh, Jephthah and David. And for those of you that know me, you know the task. Everything glitters. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like a kid in a candy store when I get in the Old Testament. I get these Old Testament stories and they're just like, oh, and, and I just, so I try to put them all on the plate. But I'm going to try to whittle it down so we get out of here before tomorrow. And so, uh, anyway, uh, I appreciate you guys and your patience. Um, let's pray and then we'll kind of jump right into it. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and kindness to us. Your patience, Lord, is incredible. And how you've been faithful to, your, to mankind all the days since you created us and that you will bring us to a good end. It goes beyond our comprehension. We thank you so much for the cross of Christ that has dealt with all of our weakness and brought us into a place of life, Lord, where, where we actually have access, Lord, to this fabulous tree of life, Lord, that we can, in hope, reach forward and find our salvation in you. We're so thankful for that. Thank you for these Old Testament Stories, Lord, that point us the way, that show us the truth, that set examples for us, Lord, that we can find wisdom in this day that we live in. We pray that you will impart something to us today as we open up your word, that you will enrich our hearts and meet each one of us individually because that's how you care for us, personally and individually. You speak our language. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we've been working through these characters in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And uh, we get to a couple of them. Like last week, Adam talked about uh, Samson and Barak. And Samson was kind of an unsavory character. Well, today you get even worse. Jephthah is, is not the, he's not, a, he's not really a good guy. We'll, we'll kind of see that. But uh, nevertheless, God used him. But let's read from uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, just to kind of set our bearings and to put us into the middle of the scripture here. From 32 to 34, I'll just read it to you. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. There is power in faith. And it's not in faith itself, but in the God behind the faith, the one who gives it to us. So anyway, these four characters are from the book of Judges. Um, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah uh, at a period of time when Israel had no king. And the scriptures kind of, uh, in, the book of uh, in the book of Judges, you can kind of see a, 
it's, it's a bit of a hyperlink back to the early chapters of Genesis where there's just this downward spiral. Everything starts pretty good under Joshua's leadership and he establishes the tribes in the land. And then there's just this constant quibbling and civil wars and uh, it just gets all messed up. And so there's this kind of this spiral that goes down. Well, we find uh, Samson and Japheth kind of down near the end. So the whole nation has come into apostasy, which means just a departure from the, from the faith, uh, from covenant faithfulness, if you will. And so the whole nation is in this state of apostasy, and it's gone from bad to worse. It says in the scriptures, uh, leading up to chapter 11, where we find Japheth, but in chapter 10 of Judges, we find the state of condition of the people. It says that they have given themselves over to, the, to idolatry, it's gotten so bad that nobody remembers Yahweh at all. Nobody worships him at all. And, and uh, they have completely forgotten him and taken up the Canaanite gods. And so what happens is it says that God gave them over to these two different people groups, Philistines and, Am and Am uh, Ammonites. I keep wanting to say, if I say Amorites, I mean Ammonites. That's who we're talking about today. There's all these A people in the land, you know. That um, anyway, they cause trouble. But the Ammonites are over on the east side, and the Philistines are over on the west side of Israel. And so Samson and Japheth could have been kind of nearer at the same time. And it was two different conflicts. But it says in chapter 10 of Judges that the Lord gave the, the nation over to the Philistines and the Ammonites. In other words, what it means is that God let them have their way. And that's what you'll find, is that God will contend with you up to a point, but if you keep putting a stiff neck on it, he'll kind of give you over to whatever passion you have. That's a principle to remember. That's something that the scriptures show us plainly. It's not so much like God goes, okay, on Wednesday you're bad, so Thursday I'm going to give you a smacking. That's not what really happens. It's really like the Lord kind of just releases you to yourself. And we see that on a national level. And it causes nothing but trouble. Your enemies begin triumphing over you. And that's what's happening with Israel. The enemies are, are coming down and they're oppressing uh, Israel. And so 18 years this happens. And then the elders um, go looking for someone, it says. They go looking for someone to rise up and fight the Ammonites. They go through this national repentance which is kind of interesting. What they do is they begin to realize, well, man, we got all kinds of trouble, uh, so what we better do is repent. So they do, they, they, they kind of do this repentance thing where they put away the idols, they cut down the Asherah poles, the symbols of worship of these idolatrous um, Canaanite gods. They put it away and they began to try to worship Yahweh again, but still Yahweh is silent. He's not really speaking to him in the midst of that trouble. And so they start looking about like, what can we do? These Ammonites are still oppressing us. Let's look for a guy. Let's find us a guy and put him in charge that can fight these guys. And that's where we get to Japheth. And so anyway, had nothing to do with my notes, but I'm in here somewhere. So we get to Japheth and in chapter 11, we get a portrait of Japheth. Uh, it's, he is 
seemingly the firstborn of Gilead. He's born of a woman of prostitution, it says. He's scorned by his brothers who were born of Gilead's legal wife, Gilead being his father. Uh, they drive him out, and he is disinherited and cut off. So imagine this. You've got this firstborn kid, but the other brothers, they all rise up against him and throw him out. And they tell him, you don't get an inheritance. We're just done with you. So they drive him out. And that's kind of his, that's where, um, that's his uh, family, family squabble and uh, uh, formation. Because today, what I'm going to do, the reason why this is important is I want you to pick up and hold that in the back of your mind, this thing about formation. Because we're going to do a contrast between Jephthah and David and how they're formed and some of the things that happen. And who we are and how we're kind of formed is kind of important. And I think we can draw some strength and, and encouragement from understanding how the Lord works in our life and informing us. And so anyway, he's disinherited. He's cut off, driven out from his homeland, forced to survive, and he's described as a mighty warrior. Uh, he's a man of war, the Hebrew word gabor, which, which means a man of war, so he's a, he's a power guy. And uh, he heads off to an outlying territory to the north. He leaves Gilead and he moves way up north, and he it says that uh, it says that worthless fellows gathered around him. You're going to hear that with David as well, <laughs> you know. But how the, how Japtha affects these men and how David affects his worthless fellows that gather around him is going to be quite a contrast. So I just want to put that out there for you. So here you've got this nasty, tough guy thrown out. He's got all of the earmarks since we know psychology so well in the 23rd, what is this, 21st century? I've lost track like I could care. But here we are many thousands of years later, and we know psychology now. We know that this guy's got all the best stuff that makes for a good criminal. <laughs> I'm serious. It just is. I, one time I had a guy that told me, he said the laws for the unfathered. And I thought, what is that, what? And I thought it was a really dense statement that the law is for the unfathered. And that takes, if you stop and think about the weight of that through the scriptures, that when we come into the place where we are, enter into a relationship with God and he puts his law in our own heart and we're fathered, all of a sudden the law just, it, 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 it has... It means something, it has value, but we concur with it. We operate with it, we flow with it, we see the wisdom of it. But for those that are unfathered, highly independent, self-preserving, the law becomes an antagonism, criminal, criminal minds. That's just kind of how it works. So anyway, he's up in the, he's up in the North Territory, he starts raiding, he puts together an army, and he's basically a brigand. He, uh, he starts raiding and building power because we're going to find out later in the story that this guy's heart is full of retribution. He is not walking in forgiveness, and, uh, and that will come out later on in the story. And so anyway, he's building power for himself. 
He's doing the very thing that all men that are separated, men and women that are separated from God do. They start build, you start building your, your empire of self-preservation. And that's what we find with Jephthah. He's just, he's just being a sinner. So we find out that he's predictably narcissistic, angry, retributive. I think that's how I best say it, retributive, uh, and brutish. Uh, nothing in the story refutes this or shows any repentance on his part as he rises to the occasion before him. Remember, the culture around him is polluted. And so not only is he himself polluted, but he's interfacing and responding to the culture that's around him. Sound familiar? We get caught in that same thing. We start, we start reflecting the culture that's around us. It's huge. It's huge to, to grow and move away from that. We're all highly influenced by that sort of stuff. And without truth, we, we just simply get sucked into it. We really do. And that's kind of where he's at. He's just a man of the time. The uh, culture around him, like I said, is polluted with idolatry and apostasy, and the recent repentance is only out of desperation. The repentance of the nation is not because because they realize that they're doing wrong, it's because they're in deep trouble and their enemies are gonna drive them out of the land. And so they repent. Well, we're in trouble now. I better get better make right. I see a Waterloo coming. That's a poor foundation for repentance. It's the goodness of God, the scriptures say, that lead us to repentance. It's when we see his goodness. It's when we turn to him and that veil of, of, of darkness is taken away and we see Jesus <laughs> raised from the dead for our justification. When we see that, it causes something of humility to happen in us. And it's his goodness that leads us to behavioral changes. It's not behavioral changes that bring that. It's seeing the goodness of God that brings that. And sin has a tremendous power to block that in our souls. So anyway... Desperate times are fertile ground for opportunistic criminals like Jephthah. He's basically something close to a modern gangster. Not that he's all bad. He has some virtue. Uh, he seems to be a man of his word, for one thing. What he says he does. What he says he means. He seemed to have some value for truth, as we shall see. So the elders come to him and they approach him and try to get him to uh, come and fight the Ammonites. They promise to make him a ruler over all the people if he's victorious. Oh, and his brothers are probably among them. And so here he is, he's like, you can just see this. He's like, oh, here's my opportunity. And, uh, you know, he's got these warrior skills that make him fit for it. But he makes a vow with the elders before the Lord to be their leader. Notice here, at no point has the Lord called Jephthah or have the people been directed by Yahweh to appoint him to the position. They just seem to act according to their fear and most obvious resources. They're just looking for, like, what do we have? What do we got? Well, we've got Jephthah. Let's get him. And so what we have is we have this, this echo that kind of foreshadows the coming of Saul, the first king. We have the people choosing the leader. The Lord hasn't chosen him. The people have chosen him because he's big and tough with broad shoulders and a sharp sword. 
So when we get to this contrast between him and David, we're going to see a, a different story. They promised to make him ruler over the people, at least over the Gileadites, if he's victorious. And so uh, he steps up and he begins to do his fight. Jephthah begins with diplomacy, which is a good idea. And so he sends a, he sends a message to this Ammonite king. And this is where we get an insight into something that the foundation of why God chose him. Because he sends this appeal for peace to the Ammonite king, and the Ammonite king refutes with a lie. He says, he goes, I'm fighting against you. Jephthah basically asked him, why are you fighting against us? Why are you coming against us? Well, you stole our land. And he names this geographical place where the Gileadites are dwelling. And he says, you stole our land when you came out of Egypt, and blah, 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 blah. And... You know, because it's, it's all just a lie. It's a fabrication. And this is where Jephthah knows his history. He steps up and goes, we did not. He goes, you know for a fact that the Amorites were in this land and God made them a holy sacrifice before us and destroyed them utterly and gave us this land. So the Ammonite king is lying. To back and justify his tyranny against Israel. But Jephthah says, no. He goes, that's not the truth. He goes, it was the Amorites and God destroyed the Amorites and gave us this land. Therefore, see, now, let me just pick up on that. When you know the truth and when you declare the truth of God into a situation, it's amazing the level of courage and confidence that you have. Have you ever tried to execute anything on the basis of a lie? You might as well be a willow in the wind. You guys that are warriors in here know this. If you lose, if you lose the idea of the righteousness of your, of, of your means, of, of your motive, your courage and strength goes right out the window. Now, I've never been in war but I've been in some street fights. <laughs> Confidence goes a long ways in the next three seconds of your life. You know, on movies, that's not like how it is. You ever been in a street fight? It's fast. <laughs> it's a flurry of activity for about two seconds, if even that. And then the damage. But confidence is everything. And so that's what Jaffith has. He has confidence. Anyway, when he gets through this part, in Judges 11, 29, verses 29 to 32, and we could read that together, it says, at that time the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he went throughout the land of Gilead and Manasseh, including Mizpah and Gilead, from where he led an army against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. Now notice, that's the Lord that gives him favor to raise the army. When he goes out, Israel is basically in a place of indifferent attitudes toward each. There's tribal civil war and skirmishing going on. There's jealousies and envy. The land's in apostasy. But the Lord causes favor to come, and Jephthah is able to put together an army. 
and says, it reveals, um, and, he, and it also says in here that the Lord gave him victory. Jephthah led his army against the Ammonites, and the Lord gave him victory. So the Lord gave him favor to get the army and to make the victory. But Jephthah's vow is completely unnecessary. It reveals an attempt to bargain or curry favor with, from the Lord. This is an act, this is a pollution of faith, which I'm going to, this is kind of an important point. We don't make deals with God. <laughs> That's foolish thinking. This type of thinking arises from idolatry and sin. When we have a wrong idea of who God is, and when we're full of sin and we, and we need to marshal up something on our part to do for God to show favor to us is just, that's the lesson. These Old Testament stories were given to us as examples that upon whom the ends of the ages has come to strengthen us. Jesus plainly instructs us not to make vows. Matthew 5, 33 to 37 says this, you have also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by earth, because earth is his footstool. Do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my own head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes I will, or no I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Most of all, my brothers, it says in James 5.12, most of all my brothers and sisters never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no so that you will not sin and be condemned. Jephthah attempts to secure his present with a vow and ends up sacrificing his future. As we shall see, his vow is to offer a burnt offering, a dedication or a thanksgiving offering, if you will, the first thing that comes out his door when he arrives home. Knowing his character, he probably thought it would be one of his slaves that would come out to greet him. But that's not what happened. His daughter, his only daughter, comes out the door first. Jephthah's response is to blame the daughter. Oh! My daughter, you've ruined me. That's how he says it. Like it's this young lady's fault that she's wanting to welcome her victorious dad who's delivered him from their oppressors and she rushes out and dad says, you've, oh, what have you done? Here he makes a stupid vow, which is only for his self-preservation and ends up losing his daughter his future, because for him, that's the end of the line. When he offers this, and he did offer her as a burnt offering, which is forbidden in the law of Moses, but here we are. <laughs> and he offers his daughter as a sacrifice. The noble, the noble character of the daughter is amazing. She's just, she submits to this whole thing. And I mean, it's, it's just crazy. There's a lot that could be said making comparisons between Abraham uh, offering Isaac and Jephthah offering his daughter. The daughter is never named. The Lord never speaks a word of preservation. The whole thing's just a mess. And so 
This is the sacrifice that he loses. And so Jephthah's response just brings his own ruination and the end of his line in any hope of inheritance in the land, which is everything to the Israelites. It's why he's upset in the first place. The very thing that he is burned in anger over, which is his inheritance with his brothers, and the thing that he's been trying to do is entrench himself in power, has come to a, an eventual end. It doesn't take long for him to see that's the end of Jaffa. And just as a finale on our hero here, when the Ephraimites confront him because for dishonoring them by passing over him uh, in the call for soldiers, when he went out looking for soldiers, he didn't go to Ephraim and ask them, even though they had suffered at the hands of the Ammonites and had lost people in their tribe, he didn't go and ask them anything, and so they had issue with him. And uh, so Jaffed, what they do is they come and they have a confrontation with Jaffed and they insult him and threaten to burn his house down. So Jephthah despises a retribution that leads to the slaughter of 42,000 Ephraimites. Not godly behavior. He does not win the prize for dad of the year <laughs> or for judge of the century. <laughs> but for six years, God is able to use Jephthah to drive out the strife and bring repentance and carry the nation forward. So he's able to use this brutish character to reestablish his order in the midst of this incredible social chaos. And that's why he's in this book. That's why he's in Hebrews. Because he's, he understood the power of God and appealed to the power of God. And God used him even in his roughness, if you will, you know, uh, to accomplish his will and to carry forward the project that uh, God is uh, faithfully bringing forth. Sometimes we struggle... This is my point in that. We sometimes struggle with God's choice of who he chooses to use. Something in us demands that the Lord use only virtuous folks of high moral character. Now, I don't know about you, but I had God do a lot of things through my life, and I wouldn't consider myself a, per a necessarily virtuous person when Jesus first found me. And I was amazed that he would use somebody like me. And that's true today. He knows us. He knows our heart. He knows our character. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our power struggles and our motives. And yet he loves us anyway. And he presses in. And if we will believe him and trust him, he will do small and mighty acts that may have big, powerful consequences in this day. And so we can be grateful for Jephthah. He shows us something. We can learn something. And so anyway... The danger in this belief is that we find it easy to disqualify ourselves or those around us as deficient, unworthy, or at worst, unlovable. The Bible tells it like it is, unvarnished. God often uses imperfect people to accomplish perfect results. I'm pause. I need an amen. amen. All right. I'm feeling discouraged there a minute. I want to stir it up. I'm just teasing. Uh, a sidebar caution here before we go on to David. It's easy to be impressed and taken in by powerful and charismatic people. Jesus cautioned us to judge by the standard of moral goodness, those we place trust in, to powerful positions of influence. This is why we must keep our eyes on Jesus and why he says, you will know the tree by its fruit. 
And if we have, if we're walking close with Jesus, we'll be able to discern those things. We can discern people in power, even being used of God, and yet keep our hearts safe from the influence, undue influence that we give celebrity, then we can stay true to the course and find the path of life. That's pretty deep stuff. I just, you know, I'm going to stop right there with Jephthah. In this day and age, with the internet, there's some, there's some real challenges to our faith. All right, on to David. He's a lot funner to talk about. He's our favorite king. Like Moses, much is written about this guy. Where do I even start? I got to chisel it down. I mean, like, oh, what can I talk about here? Consider how the Lord, let's consider how the Lord formed him. To fulfill this desire of the Lord, to have a man who would do all his will. This is what God wants. Let's begin with a couple of familiar verses in Acts 13.22. But God removed Saul and replaced him with David, a man about whom God said, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. In 1 Samuel 13.14, it says this, but now your, speaking of Saul, kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now we remember when Samuel went to the house of Jesse, all the sons were paraded before him. And Samuel, he went, whoa, the firstborn, this has got to be him. What a strapping individual. He reminds me of Jephthah. <laughs> and the Lord goes, not him. So he keeps passing on down, and then finally we get this kid, goes, they go and get this kid out of the pastures with the sheep and bring him in. He's the baby of the family, and he's a, I picture him as a somewhat kind of skinny, handsome little kid, not a bunch of power, and, and we all know the effects of sibling rivalry, so in a patriarchal society, I mean, he's just like, <laughs> he's the last one you would pick. But the Lord brings the word to Samuel and says, I look at different people. I look at people differently than you do. I look upon the heart, the potential that's in there. Thank God that he looks at our potential. Thank God that he looks at my potential. He sees things in there that I don't even know are in there. And he can call it out and draw it out. I remember my young daughter went off to, she was a timid little child when she was young. And she was uh, given over to fear quite a bit. And you know her, and she's not here. That's why I'm talking about her. Because <laughs> she'd be upset if I did this. So you don't tell her. Don't tell her. <laughs> so she went off to college, and she'd had, she had the chops, man. I mean, I could tell. Her dad, I just could see. They had, she had stuff in her that she didn't even know. And she did. She rose up, and, I, and, and, and we had this interaction, father-daughter thing, where I helped her learn how to quote Scripture against her fears, and she overcame those fears. When she came back from college, she was a different girl. She had got involved in a Christian fellowship down there where they were out hitting the bricks, doing the work. And boy, I tell you what, she started emerging. She comes back to a small little church that we belonged to at the time, and the pastor goes, what happened to her? He goes, how did we... Where did that come from? And I recognized what it was, is that the spirit of me and ministers that were around her literally, by the grace of God, called it out of her. By words of encouragement, by affirmation, by good discipleship. 
and she began to discover something and her toe got a hold in that and now this girl knows how to she knows how to rip the cloth open bring us into the glory that's a gift it's a great thing it was in there it was called out and God looks at David and he knows he can see the potential I can call him out it's not so much that David is got such a right heart oh I'm just burning to know the Lord it's not that a, 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 a man after my own heart it's a man after my own choosing God is looking into David's heart and saying this is the one who'll do everything I want him to do he'll respond he's far from a perfect man but man has he got some he's got some good stuff and we see that coming out so Samuel anoints David in the presence of his father and his brothers think of the probable impact of this to David's young mind he goes back out to the sheep and he's wondering what in the world the prophet the power man of our nation the one who's speaking the word of God to us has come and anointed me to be the king and I'm out here on this grassy knoll with a bunch of bleeding sheep <laughs> he doesn't he's wondering you wouldn't you I would but it says also that the Spirit of the Lord was with David from that point on. We know David went back to the sheep that predators came and attempted to bring harm to the flock. We know David courageously faced them and defended the flock. These acts were born of confidence that comes from faith. In time, David meets Goliath in battle. Think of his perspective as revealed in the scripture and uh, whose honor he is focused on. 1 Samuel 17, 37 says, The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine, from this uncircumcised Philistine, from this agent of the devil against the will of God, according to his people, Israel. That's what this young man's looking at. He's looking down there at this big tall guy and he is not threatened he's remembering lions and bears and he's remembering that God met him in those times because what was his functional job was to care for those sheep and protect them I don't know whether David in his mind saw that he was in a spiritual training ground but we see it now So he goes down and he takes the head right off of this uncircumcised Philistine. And from that point on, he starts to grow in power. God brings him into the court of Saul because he needs some king training. And so he brings him into the administrative parts of ruling as a king, of generals, the world of generals, the world of politics and ambitions and quibblings and positionings and David is brought into all of that and exposed to all of it he goes out as a general himself and the Lord's with him and he becomes a powerful mighty warrior and he's it says that the jealousy of Saul was stirred up because he came back and the young women sang songs about David Saul has killed his thousands but David is tens of thousands and the king is burning David is about to come into an understanding of the Lord's deliverance of when you mess with the bull you will get the horn and whether you believe it or not there's a horny bull out there 
<laughs> I couldn't let it go, Pastor. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and, and if you poke it, you will get some reaction. And so that's just a sidebar. <laughs> just because I'm, I'll make my apologies later. So anyway, what happens is David is forced to flee. Saul wants to kill him. He goes out into these holes in the ground. Holy smokes. I need to sum this up quickly. He goes out and Saul pursues him for years. And God brings an army around him just like Japheth, certain worthless fellows. But David's mentoring of them is phenomenal. They become mighty men, noble men later on we see in scriptures. And so David constantly humbling himself under the hand of God and he has to wait for God to deliver him day in and day out to sustain him. He could have easily took his sword out and killed Saul several times, but he did not do that. He stayed in the hand of the Lord and let the Lord finish him. Through all of that, through those sufferings, David was broken and formed. I imagine it was difficult for him. He was, not, he was not afraid. He wasn't responding as fear. He had every ability and he could have delivered himself, but he had to wait and learn to trust the Lord to deliver him. And by the end of these tremendous trials, when David brings the ark into the city and the glory of God comes and he establishes Jerusalem, as the capital of the nation and begins to make preparation to build, he finds that same bedrock of humility that he learned while he was cave hiding. Personally, one of my litmus tests is I want to see somebody that's done some cave dwelling when I'm going to put my confidence in leaders. That's just me. You can interpret it however you want. At one point in David's reign, if I can take a few minutes, I know I'm running a little bit over, but um, I want to take a few minutes and I want to show you, years later, David is now the king, the kingdom's established, he's got a lot of power, but it says that Satan came along and enticed him in a moment of weakness, and he decided that he would, he would rise up and make a census of the people and count them. And it says the anger of the Lord burned against him. Now, why would that be so bad? He's a general, he's a, you know, and he sends his generals out to count. They're counting military men. What he's doing is he's looking at his resources to see what power he has and what he can, and make a plan from himself, not from the leading of the Lord. And so what he's doing is this is, this is where he draws back and he, he's doing the very thing we've been talking about. He's withdrawn from participating with the plan of the Lord and he's moved over here to asking God to bless him and, and, and to be involved in what he's going to do. And it says that the anger of the Lord came against him. The anger was kindled and judgment came forth. It says that there were three possible things. The Lord gave him a choice of three possible things. Now listen to what David does. He humbles himself and throws himself on the mercy of God and he says, punish me alone. It was me. The problem is, is this whole modeling, mentoring ideology, this hero has imparted something to the people. He has set an example and the whole people have become polluted by it. 
Listen to me, dads. <laughs> Take care of what you say and what you do in the presence of your family. It goes for generations. It's important. Leaders, if you're leading anything, and if you're following Jesus very long, you're going to be a leader. Because he's made us the head, not the tail. Anyway, so a plague breaks out. And what does David do? He rushes right down to the Lord. He turns to him, and the Lord shows him what to do. He goes, he knows what to do. He goes down, and he offers money for a threshing floor, and he makes an offering before the Lord. He purchases it because he will not offer something to the Lord that doesn't cost him anything, so he paid an abundant price for this threshing floor. And then he offered bulls there, and the Lord held back the plague that the, the agent of death was bringing to the people. And David delivers the people. He knows. To me, when I look at that, it's a magnificent story of a well-prepared leader in the midst of incredible calamity, taking his people through in three days. Three days. And just to finish the story, it's just such an amazing story of David responding. He does not kill 40, 42,000 Ephraimites. No, he makes an intercession to the salvation of the people. Praise God for good leaders. And so this is the story of David and his formation. And he takes his place with our heroes of faith. And he sets before us an example of how to rest in the power of God. We must rest in the power of God to find our future. Let him form you as you determine to participate in his, his great work. Now the worship team come back up here. I'm sorry I made you late for lunch. This morning while Jenna leads us into worship, we'll have prayer, uh, people for prayer up here. So as we sing, and if you need prayer, please do come forward. Maybe you've made vows and you've heard something in here this morning that you see, I need to get right with the Lord about that. Perhaps you've been putting yourself in the place of asking God to bless your plan rather than resting in his love and power. Any of those sort of things or anything the Lord has spoken to you, please don't hesitate to take the opportunity to come down and receive prayer this morning. God bless you.